morning. This is Community Pulse, your grassroots report on the coronavirus outbreak here in mid-Missouri, where we provide local updates and public health information regarding the unfolding pandemic from a unique community radio perspective. You can catch Community Pulse live every weekday morning at 9 a.m., and you can find it later on at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. It is Thursday, April 16th. And as the national conversation turns to reopening everyday life here uh, across the world, um, we're going to talk about policy and what policymakers and influencers are saying about the criteria needed for a safe relaxing of social distancing measures. Joining us by phone, as usual, is Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician, and our returning guest, Jenny Chadwick, community advocate and public health professional. Good morning, Elizabeth and Jenny. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Jenny. Good, good morning. Thank you for having me again. Of yeah. Um, it's really um, lovely to be able to have uh, voices of the community join us. Um, so I want to start with the um, numbers today. Uh, boy, we're just racing ahead. We reached 2 million cases worldwide yesterday, and now it's 2.1 million, so another 100,000 cases over the day. Um, 136,000 deaths worldwide and 526,000 people recovered. The U.S. has 645,000 cases with 29,000 deaths and 2,000 recovered. Um, Missouri, looking at the Missouri deaths, it's concerning that the new deaths is trending up over the last uh, two days. And hopefully that's just a reflection that 10 days ago we had an uptick in cases, but it's concerning when the rate goes up. So we have 5,000 cases statewide, 167 deaths, and um, 81% of counties are reporting cases. So the idea that initially this was just going to be an urban problem is clearly not what's going on. <clears throat> but of course, because of international increased international travel, the urban areas were some of the first to be hit. They are not. Um, it, it, this virus spreads very easily. Um, uh, 34% of our ICU beds and 64% of the ventilators across the state, according to the Missouri Hospital Association, are still available. But many, several hospitals are experiencing, many hospitals are experiencing shortage and some of them um, extreme shortages in things like gloves and other um, personal protective equipment. So we have not overwhelmed our hospital staff as far as numbers. We are asking them to do things that are putting themselves at risk. Um, Boone County has 90 cases now, still with one death. So I think that I have been hearing a lot um, among my friends and on social media um, that, man, isn't it, isn't it time to be done with this? This is painful. Uh, people are losing their jobs. Uh, students are going without education. Uh, we're missing important life events. When, when can we open things up? And that's why I wanted to have um, Jenny come talk to, talk to us. You sent me a lovely article from the Pew Research Center. Um, let's just start with that. Yeah, you know, we are fortunate that um, governors across the country are really banding together because, you know, yesterday, even on the president's COVID um, news briefing, he, you know, is pushing. And there's an expected announcement today on what his um, administration anticipates of opening the 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 country back up again and, and getting the economy working, as people say. Um, but, 
You know, I want to read these four guiding principles that these um, governors have come out with, because I think that it is so critical when we ask, you know, when are we going to stop doing what we're doing? I'm, I'm tired of it. And I think that everybody mm-hmm. is. But, you know, these four guiding principles protect the vulnerable population, ready facilities to take care of sick. And, you know, when we talk about what we have in Missouri as far as hospital um, ICU beds and, and ventilators, we are not predicted to surpass the capacity of our healthcare system in most areas, right? But we know that there's going to be um, surges and, and really strains in certain areas. So how do we make sure that we are ready to care for the sick in all areas and especially the most vulnerable populations? So lessening the direct impact on the virus on the disadvantaged communities. We know that um, in St. Louis City, all of the deaths have been of African-Americans. So we know that there's a huge inequality in healthcare in our, our country and that the, the most disadvantaged or the most vulnerable populations are going to be the most impacted. And so in creating a system of testing, tracking, and isolating the, those with the disease. And I think that that is the key here in Boone County, Elizabeth, is um, we know that right now the Boone County Health Department, we have seen so few cases, right? We're at 90 cases in the in the county, yet we also know that the health department has reported that they're, they're strained. They're so busy doing contact tracing, you know, as, as they've reported in the newspaper, right, that, you know, we don't have time to take care of the homeless population right now. We are focused on contact tracing, yet we've only had 90 cases to contact trace. And that's not to say that that's not a hard job. But what if we had more? Right. It's a, it, this is what happens when we underfund our public health systems, is that when we really need them, they are not there and ready. And, of course, we could hire new people, but um, contact tracing is an art and a skill to be to – be, it, it's not something you can learn um, and be great at in a couple of days. And when we talk about funding our public health system uh, and across – the country and the globe, um, you know, President Trump made the announcement two days ago that we are going to cease um, payment to the World Health Organization. And, you know, the United States accounts for about 20% of the World Health Organization's budget. This virus knows no state boundary and, and no, no shore, right? So right. if we stop putting money into the countries that are the most vulnerable, um, then this thing is just going to repeat, right? We keep talking about when can we open up again? You know, we have very few people immune in Boone County, and now we have both the antibody test and um, the viral test, but um, we have only tested 3 million people in the United States so far, and we had 5 million people go on unemployment last week. So when we think about the numbers of people in our country, we've now boosted it up to where we're testing 170 or 145,000 people each day in the U.S., but those tests are not equitably distributed and especially not into the rural parts of our, our state and the country. Right. And um, you say that we have antibody tests. That is in theory. Some people have antibody mm-hmm. tests. The very wealthy have antibody tests. I know that despite Herculean efforts, I have acquired uh, access to only four of those tests. So um, it is not something that is very available um, in the way that we need it to be available. Get the most affluent zip code in Florida, everyone gets tested there, right? And so, we, again, okay. we see the inequities 
and um, the risk that we are putting our vulnerable populations in. So yeah, and there's a there's also a community in Colorado, also very wealthy, where everybody's already been tested. So it's you know um, these are places where we're getting valuable information, but this is not like that. That is not those are not the communities I was the most curious about, and that would be them have the most impact on all of us. I am concerned about folks in uh, uh, elder care facilities, uh, nursing homes, assisted living, um, uh, rehab facilities. I'm also concerned about people in hospitals, in prisons, in uh, domestic violence shelters. I mean, places where people are stressed, limited resources, um, maybe fearful immigration uh, communities, um, maybe fearful uh, or unable to contact um, healthcare folks when they get sick, and so they're not getting tested, and they're also not being supported in staying away from other people and not spreading it. So can we talk a minute about these stay-at-home orders and the people yeah. anticipating when they're going to get lifted? Because I think that we have given people false hope. So I was just looking yes. at the stay-at-home order in Columbia, Missouri. It was issued on March the 25th to expire on April the 24th. That's in eight days, Elizabeth. Right. Our county is not even supposed to peak in the next eight days. And so we are saying that, in theory, our stay-at-home order, which, you know, to my knowledge, and maybe I missed it, um, has not been extended. Um, When Kansas City put their stay-at-home order in place, they put theirs in place on the 17th of March, so before we did, and they said that theirs wouldn't expire until May 15th at the earliest. It it, it said, and it will be in place till at least May 15th. And so We gave an anticipation in Columbia, Missouri, that that stay-at-home order, there was no language like the Kansas City stay-at-home order. You know, I I have the St. Louis stay-at-home order in in front of me, and it went into effect on the 23rd, so two days before ours did, and shall be imposed on those restricted for at least 30 days, unless she deems that. I, I love that they did put the she in. So often when you're reading legal language, it is a he, and the St. Louis County Health <laughs> Department director is a female, and so wanted to point that out. But, and, you know, Missouri stay-at-home order is set to expire on um, April the 24th, the same day as the city's stay-at-home order. So there's an anticipation, and rightly so by people, because that's the date right. we told them. Um, and right. unless and you're the- in public health or <laughs> scientists, you're not going to know that the, the city and the state are not being forthcoming with you? Right. And it would seem um, really foolish to uh, re- open up uh, for relaxation of social distancing just as we get to the peak, just when we're expecting the most number of people in our community would have this, this virus, that that would be when we would start to interact more often. Right. Uh, I mean, so <laughs> yeah. do we call on leadership? to ask them to um, be more open and honest about the uncertainty of when this stay-at-home order shall expire or should expire, but also to at least note that it's not going to expire on, well, let's just say as a public health advocate, I sure hope that it doesn't expire on on April the 24th. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, that that would be um, not evidence-based because we have not done any of these things that, that we talk about. So when they, we talk about ready facilities to care for those who get sick, you know, I think we mainly think about hospitals and ICU beds and ventilators, and those are really important ones because that's where the horrible things will happen if we overwhelm the system. 
But we also need to have a plan for, okay, so what about people who are going to stay home while they're sick because they're not sick enough to be hospitalized? How do we support um, people who maybe don't have housing at all, have inadequate housing, um, are living with uh, vulnerable people? Um, so in some uh, places during pandemics like this, we've had what we call fever hospitals or sick hospitals, where they're really more like infirmaries where people, all the people there have are sick, um, and that's maybe not the staff, um, but the, that they could then be separated from the rest of the of the community, not in any unkind or taking away people's civil liberties, but as a as an option, so that um, if, for example, you got it, but your um, partner is undergoing chemotherapy and is immune suppressed, and you would want to be to have some space from them, but you know who are you? You're going to move in with a friend, and it, these are challenging things. What about people who've been in the hospital and now are ready to come home uh, or need to go to a rehab facility because they need another week or so of nursing care, but not at a hospital level? Um, we, again, ideally we'd have facilities that were set apart for those things. We do not have that yet. And I don't know whether people are thinking about that. And the only way we could actually do that is to have widespread testing. So we would know that we wouldn't be putting vulnerable non-immune people into those facilities with people with active infection. And these yeah. things cost money. They are, they, you know, I can't imagine that there's any nursing home in Columbia or any place in the world that would want to raise their hand and say, we'll be the sick nursing home. Because then it would be, you know, months or years of uh, PR to try to, to erase that off of their reputation, that that was a place where um, so many sick people were. Um, and so these are the places where, you know, we have to step together, I think, collectively to um, address these problems rather than expecting a person to do that. Um, and protecting the vulnerable populations, we are still just arguing over what's right to do with uh, folks in Colombia who don't have a home to live in. Um, these are easy problems to solve, but um, they, we, what do we do about our incarcerated? Um, what do we do about people who are still in our county jail because they don't have enough cash for bail. That should not, you know, having been arrested and charged but not convicted should not be a death sentence. You shouldn't be at risk for dying. And, and yet they're problematic. Like, do, are we going to say we aren't going to enforce our laws? I, I'm hoping that they're going to be wise people to step forward and show us the way to do that. Yeah, but when um, we think on, about adequate testing, right, like I'll again reiterate, right. we've done 3 million tests in the United States. That's half of the population of Missouri, right, for the right. entire country. So right. the, the minimal number of tests that we've done is, is not sufficient to really identify where the virus is. We have clearly identified, identified we don't have places to um, isolate those who are really sick. You know, if we really wanted to put you know, as you mentioned before, with nursing homes and long care facilities, that's definitely still an issue. And then, um, you know, if we can't track, right, if we don't have the staff at the healthcare at the health departments to really contact trace who has been exposed to the virus, we're not ready yet to open. To have more cases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, and and, and yeah. then we look to vaccines. You know, when when is that going to be? And you know, or is there a, a cure? Right. And and mm -hmm. there again, no magic 
silver bullet. We don't know. You know, we, we're not going to have a miracle here. It, this is science. Right. We're hoping that convalescent serum, that is the plasma, the clear portion of our blood um, from people who have had the, had the disease and have antibodies, will be helpful for the very sick. But even that is an unproven uh, uh, therapy and is being tested. So various different um, medications are being tried and tested. And these are these remedies are being, I think, legitimately shuffled to the most sick in the most desperate circumstances. And I I totally understand why that is. And it's the very worst circumstance for us to to do a randomized controlled trial. Um, so we are getting some clinical experience, but it's all going to be biased based on the fact that we're not giving them to everybody who comes because we don't have enough of them. So. I think we're a long way away from these things, and I don't know what's the right thing to do as far as how do we preserve our economy while we um, also uh, deal with this life-threatening illness. Uh, but I think these governors have come up with a, a great uh, beginning uh, of ideas. And then I'm wondering if you want to, if you would like to speak a little bit about the World Health Organization. I will, but before we go. Um, globally, I want to talk about one more thing here locally. Yeah. You know, when we talk about inequities and access, um, one you know weakness that I found in the system is that those who are on SNAP and WIC are still not able to purchase online. And I've been having some conversations with Martha Stevens, um, our state rep, and you know the Department of Health and Senior Services for the state has been looking into it. It looks like it's a weakness between the USDA. And so it's a conversation that needs had with Senator Holly and Senator Blunt um, as we think okay. about why the state of Missouri doesn't work. So I'm just, I want to keep pointing out that you know, we have vulnerable populations that, you know, don't have the comfort that we all have of being able to shop online and that we need to continue to speak out in ways to do that. But, yeah, so for the World Health Organization, you know, Elizabeth, this is an organization that does so much more than just COVID-19, right? You think about right. HIV, polio, um, and this is a global effort across um, the world to prevent exactly what we are dealing with right now and to be proactive. And, you know, they were making calls, holding daily press conferences um, across the, the, the globe to, to warn people, um, daily press briefings as early as January 22nd, right? They identified the virus on January 7th. They had the genome um, identified by the 12th. They were providing um, the testing um Kits and ways to create the testing as early as, you know, mid-January and offering that information to the CDC, we declined um, to, to accept um, any support by the World Health Organization and decided to, you know, America first, we are the best, we're going to go it on our own. And those early tests by the CDC, um, we know now were not functional or not accurately testing. So, um this is an organization that is absolutely critical now. It's an organization that runs on a $2.4 billion annual budget. And, you know, the United States, again, provides about 20% of that annual budget. And it is so critical now that we continue to fund um, a global effort, again, 
this virus knows no shore boundaries. And if we have an outbreak in one country, it's just going to come back again. Right. And I just want to say that I have been uh, paying attention to um, what the World Health Organization was saying since uh, early in this crisis, and I never felt misled by them. They are a an arm of a diplomatic organization. They are a part of the um, United Nations. What's it called? The United Nations. The United yeah, Nations, right, which is a diplomatic organization. And so they're being criticized for not being critical enough of China, but diplomacy generally doesn't um, start with criticism. And I, I think that we could argue about what should have and should not have been said to China when it was clear they were initially hiding things, and maybe since then they have not been as forthcoming as they could be. Um, but transparency uh, between governments has been a challenge, well, since the dawn of government, um, and that everybody wants to, you know, many governments feel like it's in their best interest to play their um, cards carefully. Um, and this is a diplomatic organization, so they may not have been as critical of China as some other people could have been, but they're a diplomatic organization, so it's hard to um, criticize them for that. And they do not have the authority to go into countries without an invitation. They're not, they, it's not a military organization. It's a diplomatic organization, and diplomacy I depends on invitation. I would almost challenge and say, you know, when we talk about transparency and not giving everybody full information, we don't even have full information in our country, oh, right? absolutely. Right. No, I was saying that, no. More deaths in New York that we're attributing to COVID, even though they weren't tested, but they died in their homes because we didn't have enough tests for them, right? And so when when China didn't give us all the information, it is really hard to say in this crisis. And, you know, the World Health Organization was actually critical at first of of travel bans and, and restrictions and quarantining. And then they, right. they have thus turned back and thus the world has turned back to say, actually, what China did was probably one of the most successful things at containing this virus. And, you know, they're starting to reopen their doors now, um, you know, starting to lo- starting to loosen um, their um, stay at home orders as of April the 6th. So um, when we think about how, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? Right. Yes. Yeah, I, exactly. Well, um, I think that we need to let uh, KOPN listeners get on with listening to some music. Um, thank you so much, Jenny, for, Jenny Chadwick, for joining us. Uh, thanks, Tim, for engineering. And thank you for tuning in to KOPN um, and to this Community Pulse. Yes, thank, thank you again for having me. Thank you, everybody. Once again, our guest today was Jenny Chadwick, community advocate and public health professional. And, of course, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters. Thank you so much for tuning in to Community Pulse. Uh, Coming up next is an abridged version of Background Briefing along with a little bit of music to tide us over until 10 a.m. when the Ralph Nader Hour begins, followed by Fresh Air with Terry Gross at 11 and Democracy Now! the rebroadcast at noon. This is KOPN Columbia. We are Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. We are more than radio, we are community radio, and we can't do it without you. We appreciate your support and your listening, so thank you.